Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor. And joining me today is Emma, as always. Emma, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. And we have Simon Gergel, Lead Manager on the Merchants Trust. How are you doing, Simon? Hi, nice to see you. Uh, another interesting week, some fund manager changes, which again is becoming more common. You normally get them around April after the bonuses are paid out, but it seems to be uh, later on in the year this year. But uh, I think economic-wise, we're looking to next week. Actually, next week we get the update on the UK GDP from the Office for National Statistics. I think expectations, Simon, they're about 0.6%. Is that, is that about right for the last, uh, last few months? Yeah, I'm sure that's, that's about right. I mean, we tend not to focus on the, the quarterly numbers too much. It's about the big picture, really, for us. Unless something dramatic happens with the GDP figures, I think we find the UK market, stock market is driven by other factors, particularly, you know, the Brexit issue, the, no, of course, yeah. uh, the US GDP, US interest rate outlook. So unless there's something dramatically different in the economic figures, I wouldn't expect them to move, move the markets very much. Okay, great. Um, I think it's, um, we're expecting some kind of real wages and productivity to be a bit higher. I don't know if our listeners are wary of the productivity puzzle that's been plaguing the UK economy for some time. I'd be amazed if you've missed it. Yeah, I mean, we're watching, we're watching uh, employment data because the employment is pretty full in the UK. And there's a surprise so far is that wage growth hasn't really come through either in the UK or the US, but there are signs of shortages in certain areas. So, so. No, it should, it should be interesting, especially as the wage growth for retailers, obviously, is a, is a big problem at the moment in terms of how retailers are doing, but a bit more wage growth might see a bit uh, bit of a better outlook for some of those kind of stocks, I suppose. But. Yes, it could it could help, yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Um, the other interesting thing was some global trade figures this week. Um, this is interesting because it kind of ties into the, the global trade war, which, um, so if you listen every week, we know we've been talking about. Uh, German exports were lower, UK exports were lower, this could be a sign, I suppose, and, and uh, Simon, I appreciate you're, you're, you're not a global trade economist, <laughs> but um, this, 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 this could affect you know, the stocks you invest in that sense. Is, is there a sign that the kind of economic activity might be slowing in that sense? Well, there are specific factors. There are some changes on the emission rules on cars, which are leading to very low car sales in, in certain European markets, which might be affecting that. We've seen uh, – actually, we've seen one or two companies talk about the costs of some of the tariffs in the States affecting their – Outlook. So we saw an oil services engineering company the other day, which is talking about rising metal prices and, and not necessarily being able to pass all of that on. So there are specific areas, specific companies where that's affecting affecting the outlook. But I wouldn't say so far global traders had a, a, a massive change in the expectations for the markets. Okay, it's good. It's good to know. It's good to know, especially if uh, we're invested in those. And Emma, the other thing this week that was quite interesting was statistics from the Investment Association. Uh, so listeners, just to make you aware, every month the trade body for asset managers produces um, quite a lot of numbers based on how well sales are doing. Now, obviously, this is this is interesting if you're involved in the industry, but what it does actually do is tell us collectively as investors where people are putting their money. So it's quite interesting to see where what your peers are doing and as a whole what the retail investment market and private investors are allocating to this month which is um looking back at august normally a quieter month for sales because it's the summer but this was quite interesting emma what what do we have happening in august well the main thing is negative outflows um so that's something that we saw in quite relatively substantial about 220 million of outflows in august so yeah it looks like investors are turning a bit bearish no, absolutely. I think, uh, so for context, this is the first time there's been a month of outflows since before the Brexit referendum. So, I mean, I've, you, obviously investors have been well aware of how well markets have done, but those have been followed by substantial sales for the industry and everyone has been investing. So I think that's uh, the most interesting thing. I think if we compare that back to August 2017, there was actually 4.6 billion of sales. So compare that to 220 million of outflows. 
again, it shows things might be uh, might be changing. Where where were the outflows coming from, Emma? Well, the UK, which has been has had a, a long trend of basically outflows for quite a while now. So that was a, the area of biggest net outflow of about four hundred and thirty million pounds. And there were also outflows from Europe as a as a region with about three hundred million pounds. And so those are the, probably the, the biggest areas that people were ditching. What are people buying at the moment? What's where are investors putting their money? Well, I think it's obviously interesting that the US has done extremely well this year, and obviously investors have, have picked up on that. And so they were definitely buying US and North America funds, um, which had net inflows of about a hundred million. But actually, the very best sector was the global sector with net retail sales of about four hundred million. So global is is the way to go, apparently. No, but it's interesting. It uh, kind of ties into that theme of people, I suppose, looking for diversification when they don't really know what to do. Um, and what about what about bonds? How do they how do they get how do they fare? They were also um, net outflows. So it seems that investors are kind of net outflows for equities, net outflows for um, bonds. And really, it just kind of begs the question as to you know, what what are people buying, basically? No, absolutely, yeah. So I suppose, I suppose it's, the, it's the theme of the market at the moment. There's a, a lot of confusion about how to how to define your asset allocation. Um, Simon, the UK's obviously this is this is a trend that I'm sure we're all well aware of in terms of outflows, in terms of funds, and how the markets have done and, and valuations. I suppose from even um, driven down by foreign investors selling. But uh, you've been you've been actually been putting some money into the market, and uh, you. I think you said there was a short window for opportunity for value. Could you uh, could you talk us around that, please? Well, I'm not about I'm not sure about short because it's very hard to time these things. But I think there are many companies in the UK that are really quite attractively priced at the moment because partly because of fears over Brexit and uncertainty. As you say, investors have been taking money out of the market and foreign investors have been shunning the UK. So the UK is one of the cheapest global markets at the moment, despite the fact that actually about two thirds of the profits of UK companies come from abroad. So if you're if if you're nervous about life in the UK, either either you can buy companies that reflect quite a d- good degree of scepticism or, or concern already, or you can buy global businesses that aren't really that affected by what happens in the UK. It might benefit to a UK investor if sterling weakens because the value of the overseas profits and dividends would be would be greater in in a weak sterling environment. Okay, so um, one of the stocks you've been picking up recently is, is Imperial. Can you talk us through the investment case here? Um, so Imperial is obviously it's you're an income fund manager. Imperial is a is a classic dividend uh, kind of income major. Um, but what's the what's the case at the moment? Yeah, well, we didn't own Imperial for about five years in the Merchants Trust, and we didn't own any tobacco actually for for almost a year. And we were nervous about some of the changes, and we still are about some of the new products coming through e-cigarettes. It's a big, it's a big boom, and uh, next generation heat, not burn products. We, we're slightly nervous that those can cannibalise existing cigarettes uh, and reduce smoke. The rate of smoking prevalence is going down, potentially at an increasing rate. And we don't think the industry will necessarily make as much money on the new products as they have on the historic products. Partly because there are other entrants coming into the market as well. So we stayed away for for a while, but the value now of Imperial or when we bought it was down at a very interesting level and discounting a significant continuing negative trend. Uh, Whereas in fact, if you look at Imperial's operations, they are now starting to hold their market share, if not regain market share in in normal cigarettes, traditional cigarettes. They've got some quite exciting growth in e-cigarettes and they've actually just announced recently a next generation of of heat not burn cigarette as well. So we think they can do relatively well in the next generation of new products and at the same time I think the historic business is 
is in structural decline in terms of volume, but they could still probably push for profits growth further through pr- through pricing and efficiencies. Okay, um, so Imperial's big thing is that they want to increase their dividend by ten percent, at least ten percent year on year. In terms of kind of accounting for that, and then everything you've just said about their business model, obviously they they have to be investing as well. How sustainable do you think do you think that kind of level of growth is for a dividend? It's hard to predict in the medium to long term. Clearly, to sustain that level in the very long term, you'd have to have quite a lot, a significant level of volume growth and, and pricing growth. Um, in the short term, it, it's probably sustainable. It's not the main reason we buy the share. We don't buy the share. Uh, we, we didn't buy the share thinking that they would necessarily grow the dividend at 10% for many years. The shares were sufficiently cheap in terms of the cash flows they generate. Um, and there is an element of growth coming through that we, we saw good value. So we, we didn't take a view that the dividend was sustainable for a particular number of years. But I think they will grow it in the short term, at least. So in, in terms of your investment in, in Imperial here, is this something that you will have bought in on a, on a value basis and have a target and then will sell out? Or is this something that you kind of you expect the business to be able to kind of provide dividends over the long term that can grow and help your fund and investors? Well, we're very disciplined on price. So we buy companies when they're cheap. We don't necessarily know if we're going to sell them or not. It depends what happens to the valuation and, and indeed what happens to the business. We, we, we won't be able to predict exactly what's going to happen and it could be better or worse than we than we anticipate. If the company revalues significantly, then at some point we would look to reduce that position or, or exit it. But um, when we bought it, we saw significant upside. And we are very happy to hold shares for the long term if they continue to deliver what we're expecting um, and pay decent dividends and, uh, and grow their profits. So when we buy a share, we don't necessarily have a view on how long we're going to own it for. Okay, great. And kind of wide outside of Imperial and Tobacco, the kind of Brexit economy situation we have going on, how is that impacting on your investment strategy and kind of the stocks you're looking at? Well, the funny thing about the UK stock market is it's very different to the UK economy. So if you look at the stock market, and this was true until last week, there wasn't a single, although although we manufacture a lot of cars in the UK, there weren't any quoted car companies. Uh, now, obviously, Aston Martin is a quoted car company. Indeed, yes. But but if you think about the car industry, which is enormous in the UK, you, you when you buy the UK stock market, you're not really investing in the car industry in the UK. So what you are investing in the stock market is a very different collection of businesses, which includes mining businesses, oil companies, pharmaceutical companies, businesses that operate all around the world. So the impact of Brexit in a funny way is actually not that significant on the quoted stocks. And if you try and find companies that are directly affected by Brexit, there aren't actually that many companies that that have a totally critical exposure to um, what could happen in either a hard or soft Brexit. Clearly, there is a second order effect. So if you look at domestic companies, if you look at banks or retailers or or leisure companies, they will be affected by what happens to the economy, and the economy could be affected by Brexit. So that's probably the biggest thing to watch out for in in many UK companies. It's not the direct Brexit effect itself. Okay, and is there there anything we should be thinking about, um, particularly from an income point of view, um, kind of going forward, where we're watching trade negotiations and how this might impact the economy and and things like that, aside from the sterling effect, which I I imagine is probably the biggest thing here? Well, it's, it's yes, as I say, it's the effect on the overall economies. I mean, there are specific industries like aviation. If you if you think aeroplanes aren't going to be able to fly from the UK to the continent, then obviously companies like EasyJet or, or Ryanair, which is not a British company, uh, would be affected by that. But I think that's really unlikely. But it's it's more about the overall economic impact. So companies like banks, um, like retailers, leisure companies, if you take a particularly bearish view of the UK economy, then you 
might want to be cautious about those companies. But they are pricing in, as I said earlier, they're pricing in a very significant downturn or, or at least a very difficult environment for a long period. So it's not an easy call if you want to be bearish because you'll take your, the shares are already very low, very lowly rated in many cases. No, absolutely. That makes sense. Great. Thank you very much for that, Simon. Right. Elsewhere this week, we have news from Fidelity International, a, a major fund company I'm sure many of you have heard of. Um, Ian Spedbury, he is a bond manager and he's been there for quite a long time. He's retiring at the end of the year, calling time on a 40-year career in investment management. Uh, Spedbury also being an excellent name for a bond manager. Emma, you've been, uh, you've been looking at this. What's affected? Who's affected? What's going on? Yes, so um, Mr. Spreadby runs a number of funds, including IC Top 100 Fund, Fidelity Strategic Bond. He also runs Fidelity Money Builder Income and Fidelity Extra Income. And obviously, with his retirement, they're all going to be affected. Um, so the people who are going to be taking over the, the funds, we've got a range of experienced fixed income investors. So Sajeev Vaid, who's been deputy manager on Fidelity Money Builder Income and Fidelity Extra Income is going to become lead manager of both those funds. And Fidelity Strategic Bond Fund is going to be run by Tim Foster and Claudia Ferrace. And they both also have about um, 15 years investment experience behind them. Okay, so it seems like there's uh, some sensible people coming in to take over. Uh, I think the other thing is, uh, to bear in mind for investors, is this um, this sh- isn't a surprise to, to most people in the industry. Obviously, Ian Spedry was, was reaching uh, a point of retirement. Um so in terms of how we can expect performance to change, what do we think? I mean, I think obviously what Ian Spedby brought to the team was the fact that he'd been looking at bond markets for 40 years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, some of the analysts I spoke to said that, with especially with bond funds and fixed income environment in general, you need to have a very good macro perspective. And they were saying that really tends to come from experience of having been through different market cycles. And so, of course, Mr. Spreadry's um, experience is going to be missed. But having said that, recently, um, at least for the IC Top 100 Fund, the Fidelity Strategic Bond Fund, its performance hasn't been hasn't exactly shot, shot the lights out, shall we say. Um, so over the last eight out of nine years, it's been more volatile than um, its sector. And it's actually only sort of beaten the the sector's performance in three of the past um, eight years. So maybe um, him stepping down might actually lead to a positive change in performance. No, absolutely. As I think so. He is he is he's more of a defensive manager. Um, so I think he probably allocates more to government bonds. But I suppose yeah, the volatility doesn't really account for that, does it? So yes, it's interesting to see how performance will change. Um, in terms of analysts generally, what do they what do they think about the, the changes going on? Yeah, I mean, um, it has to be said that that's what we're talking about the last few years. But overall, he's had an extremely good um, long term track record. Obviously, um, been in this space for forty years, so certainly has done well over that time. And so analysts were understandably a bit concerned about the fact that he's leaving. You know, of course, he has to retire. Everybody accepts that. But the fact that he's going to be leaving an experienced, he's such an experienced person, he's going to be leaving, will leave a hole to some extent. Nevertheless, as I mentioned, the people stepping up also seem to be very well placed. They have good levels of experience. And so the analysts I spoke to were kind of taking the wait to see approach to see how the funds that um, in Spreadbury used to run will do once this retirement transition has taken place. Okay, well, obviously, yeah, never, never rush into decisions. So let's see how this new team go along. 
Ian Spedbeer is retiring. Retirement is hard to plan, um, and that ties us nicely into another feature we have in the magazine this week uh, on retirement. Emma, you've been uh, you've been looking at retirement. What's the basis of this piece? Yeah, so basically, the piece was looking at the kind of mistakes that people often make when it gets to um, retirement, and they want to start taking a retirement income, and you know, they can do that in a variety of ways, especially now. There's been um, the pension freedoms, which allows people to take income and to access their pots much more freely than previously. But as a result of that, there's also potential for more mistakes. And basically, I was looking at the kind of things you should avoid doing. Okay, so um, what 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 might these uh, mistakes be that Mr. Spedbury needs to avoid? <laughs> yeah, Mr. Spedbury and lots of other people, I'm sure. Um, so I sort of looked at seven main ones, um, just to pick out a few. So number one, not shopping around for retirement products. I mean, it sounds very simple, but actually it's something that quite a lot of people just don't do just because pensions are so complicated and um, especially if you're sort of doing this yourself rather than using a financial advisor. A lot of people just take the easy route and take a product from their existing provider. But that's really the right thing to do because um, it leads us on to the second mistake, which is overpaying for your products. And, for example, the Financial Conduct Authority recently looked at the total cost for drawing down income using various products and they said that ranged from 0.4% to 1.6%. So quite a big spread. That is, yeah, that. That's a big range of fees. Yeah, that you're there, yeah. exactly. And, um, and if you haven't shopped around and you could easily end up being in a higher um, charging product, which will affect the amount of income you can draw um, and how far your, your pot goes, basically. No, absolutely. It's, it's one of those things, you know, um, performance can change over time, income can change over time, but fees are always going to stay the same. So pay good money for a good product but make sure you're not overpaying i suppose is is, is the advice there um what else are we thinking a couple of other things so taking an unsustainable income um and the thing with that is working out what is a sustainable income which is notoriously um can be quite difficult i mean there are some general kind of catch-all amounts that are banded around for example the institute of actuaries says that if you're going to withdraw 3.5% of your portfolio and it's managed in a risk-balanced way, you should, in theory, be okay um, with taking that amount. But at the same time, it's really going to depend on your personal circumstances. So I think that the main thing investors need to realise is that it, it, like, if you take too much income, it's going to end up you know, affecting your capital and that's going to mean that your pot's going to run out quicker so really you need to try and work out exactly what you do need and some of the experts i was speaking to suggested that taking the natural yield of what your investments are yielding is a better option as, as to make sure that you're not actually running down your capital no of course it's, it's always that this i suppose is the most difficult thing about retirement planning with income drawdown is that you can do that but it might not be enough and you have mm. to I suppose be able to find the right balance yeah sure Thank you. And there's uh, more information on all those mistakes, uh, how you can avoid them and, and what they really mean. Some of these some of these things are quite complicated, but Emma has done an excellent job in explaining them all in this week's issue. Right. That brings us to the end of this week's show, unfortunately. But for more on everything we spoke about, please uh, head to the website or pick up a copy of this week's issue. That's all from us and uh, have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.